in with us. And uh, I'm going to challenge you right off the bat to hit that share button, okay? Uh, when you do that, what you're doing is you're actually inviting people to church. And so you can do that now just by pressing one little button. So I encourage you to hit share. I've watched broadcasts from churches and they start with half a dozen people and then it turns into 12 and then it turns into 25 and so on. You get household after household watching and you never know what is going to speak to people and what is going to challenge them. All right. So I encourage you to do that right out of the gate whether you're watching on Facebook or uh, YouTube or our website, you can even watch there, all right? And bear with us. If anything cuts or changes or goes wonky, we will get back live, all right? But so far, so good. Uh, just a few announcements for you. I remind you to pray for our missionaries, the mans, uh, Don and Marie-José. You'll see their picture on your screen, hopefully. And again, they are patient folks and waiting for... Uh, travel restrictions to be lifted, and, you know, at the same time, we want to pray for Don's health and a full, full recovery that he would get to 100%, be able to do all that traveling and all of that teaching. Uh, they'll be doing leadership training in various countries around the world, okay? Uh, Michel and Louis Charbonneau, who you can always stay in touch with at HaitiMinistries.com, and uh, Haiti Ministries on Facebook, okay? And also our newest, EJ Toupe, who is in urban Toronto, in the right deep in the downtown core, does a tremendous job uh, there, been there for more than 10 years, really kind of an advocate there uh, for itinerants, the itinerant population, and is very well respected in how he's able to, he serves on different boards and, and things like that in Toronto. So pray for him as well, and you can stay in touch with him through his website. Uh, I remind you of a couple of things that are going on in our church, all online. Uh, first, uh, our video Bible study group has started, A Clash of Kingdoms, it's called. And uh, this is like top-notch content. Uh, it's probably some of the best production that I've seen and we've got a nice little group on there that started, and this is from uh, the folks at, uh, that the world may know. And they go on site in Israel and Greece and Turkey, and uh, the theme of this is a clash of kingdoms. This is looking at uh, the missionary journey of Paul and um, in the city of Philippi in particular, and how it's very obvious that uh, the kingdom of God... And when I say that, you could just simply think of it as the community of faith around the world is a very different kingdom, a very different set of values, a very different set of morals and ethics and everything compared to the kingdom of this world, as Paul puts it. And you see this clash. Uh, if you've ever tried to live Christianly, authentically out in the world, you're going to notice this. There's a, whoa, there's a big clash. And, you know, my views are in a clash with other people's views. And so how do you do that? And how do you maintain who you are as a Christ follower and yet be in a world that may not always agree with you? Uh, so we learned that on Wednesday nights. It's through Zoom. And so if you need the link, just contact us and we will send that out to you. Uh, it's one hour on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8, okay? Monday nights, we've also started a live 30-minute broadcast. Hard to keep to 30 minutes, but it's live Q&A and prayer. And so tomorrow night, we're going to talk about tattoos. Uh, that question was put to me this week in a very relevant fashion, I think. And also, somebody asked about this term, prayer without ceasing, which you see in the Bible. When, do you, when is prayer without ceasing ceased? Uh, how do we pray without ceasing, all right? We're talking about prayer in our church, so I think that's really relevant. So that'll be tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. And also, I encourage you to join, those of you who are part of our church, our new discipleship group. And this is a private group through Facebook, and it's a place where I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you to grow I'm going to give you homework every, every week after the Sunday message. I'm going to give you homework and things to write, things to do, and to post in that group. And we've already started it, and it's got a nice kind of buzz and feel to it. You're going to learn accountability in that group. You're going to be praying for one another. You're going to be uh, discovering your spiritual gifts and putting them to use in that group and in this church. 
Uh, we're going to talk about baptism and membership and how to share your faith and so many different things that we can't do uh, without being in a kind of a small group where we take it to the next place and the next level of your spiritual growth. So if you want to be a part of that, just uh, go to our Facebook page and uh, click on the little more arrow and groups and you will be able to join uh, that way, okay? And uh, thank you for your generosity and faithfulness in giving. Uh, I've tweaked a little bit the website, so it's a bit cleaner look. Uh, it's we A lot of people give through PayPal, and PayPal's always changing their buttons, and their this and their that, so that's been cleaned up a little. And I will let you know your income tax receipts for the year 2020 are ready. Uh, some of you have received them already, and uh, be, there's a mailing that went out uh, Friday, and uh, if you need uh, that by email and it hasn't come in the mail for whatever reason, just contact us and we'll send that to you for your 2020 contributions, okay? Now, uh, we're in part five of this uh, message series, When You Pray. And the whole um, uh, goal, I was going to say the whole in French, the whole goal of this series is to actually get you to pray. Uh, Jesus assumes that you do. So he says, when you pray, in Matthew chapter 6, for instance, pray this way. So he assumes that people are actually praying, and uh, I hope he's right in his assumption. But what I have found is that people really have a hard time carving into their schedule time to pray and time to pray authentically and consistently. And so we've been in a series here about prayer. We talked about uh, what do you pray about in week one, why pray anyway in week two, and so on. Uh, and so I, you can check those messages out on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, we also uh, put the audio only on Podbean and Apple Podcasts, all right? So today we're going to talk about what I feel is a lost art in um, the whole discipline, if you will, of prayer, whether you're new to praying or old to praying. I find it is a lost art and a vital part of prayer that we often miss, and that is to pray in submission, okay, to pray in submission. And I want to uh, bring you to the book of Acts, which we've been in, and this is from Acts chapter 9. And we're going to spend a lot of time digging around in the book of Acts here. Uh, I don't have time to read everything that I'm going to post on your, on your screen. Uh, but I would challenge you uh, to do that. Those of you who are in discipleship, you're going to get some homework on this, all right? Uh, but I want to talk about the life and experience of a man in the New Testament by the name of Paul. And so uh, we'll pick it up here a little in Acts chapter 9 and read a few verses, and then we'll start putting things together uh, to understand what submission really means when you're praying. So Acts chapter 9, this is the Bible's New Testament. Uh, the book of Acts is kind of a, an account. Uh, it's a narrative of all of the things that happened from the very beginnings of the history of the church. When I say church, I mean the people, the community of faith that were followers of Jesus. And here in Acts chapter 9, you've got some really bad stuff happening where this man, Paul, um, his Roman name is Paul, his Hebrew name he uses as Saul, same person, and he is about the business of persecuting uh, the church. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. By the way, if uh, you're here, if audio is a little low, uh, please do not be shy to make a comment and let us know that. Again, we're using a new platform here. Sounds great to me, but I want to know that it sounds great to you. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest, this would be the high priest at the temple in Jerusalem, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which was a ways away from Jerusalem. You can go find a map online of first century Palestine, and you'll see how far Damascus was from Jerusalem. So that if he found any uh, there who belonged to the way, this is what they called Christianity way, way back then, whether men or women, 
he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So basically, Paul, is, he wants uh, evidence of communication from people in Jerusalem to people in Damascus. And if he finds that these people in Damascus who may have left Jerusalem uh, and gone to Damascus, if he finds that there's believers in Jesus there, he's going to extradite them back to Jerusalem and essentially persecute them, prosecute them, and if he has his way, put them to death. Yes, that's what he did. So uh, as he neared Damascus, he's going to head there to see if he can if he can track down these believers. On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Supernatural, miraculous thing goes on here. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the, the response is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, that would be Damascus, and you will, you will be told what you must do. And so the company of people traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless. They hear the sound. They don't see anyone. It's apparently, this is unique to Paul. Um, he, he gets up. He, he opens his eyes. He's blind. He can't see anything. They take him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he's blind. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas, not to be confused with Judas, Judas, okay, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus. Tarsus is far away, by the way, this is where Paul was, was originally from, it's in present-day Turkey, uh, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, for he is praying. That's what I want you to focus on today. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. And so Ananias responds obediently, and he says, uh, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem and how he's come here to Damascus with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord communicates to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish folks, and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Long story short, Ananias goes into the house, enters it, puts his hands on Saul, and uh, says, says to him, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road was, uh, as you were coming here, he sent me to you so that you may see and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, he, he sees, he is baptized in water, he eats food, and he regains his strength. He was praying, verse 11. It is a verse that you can skip over very, very quickly. But I would submit to you that buried in that verse, and when you look and survey the life of Paul in the book of Acts and in the broader New Testament, you have a, a very powerful principle here uh, that's often missed in prayer. Paul is, an, is what we would call an Orthodox Jew. So today, there's still Orthodox Judaism, the Hasidim, or Orthodox Jews. You've seen them in the news recently. Uh, they just went to the Quebec Superior Court and filed an injunction, and actually the judge ruled with the Hasidim and said that uh, in places of worship, you can have 10 people per room now, not just 10 people per building, but 10 people per room, as long as the room has an entrance to the street and is not adjoined to any other room. <laughs> so I think that's the rule anyway. Pretty strange, but that's the rule. Uh, we are here in Institut Biblique du Québec. We're less than 10, and we're, we don't have a, a congregation here. We're just using it as a stream site. Uh, but in any case, those are Orthodox Jews. Paul was one of them 2,000 years ago. Um, and he imprisoned people and even murdered people who were followers of the way, followers 
of Jesus. This is pretty well all Jewish at the time. Paul's a Jew. The people who are following this new way of Jesus are Jews. Uh, but Paul has a passion and zeal to put an end to this new movement, to uh, squash it, to destroy it, to persecute it, and to obliterate it from existence. And there is a transformation that takes place in the life of Paul where he flips 180 degrees and becomes a follower of the way that he is persecuting. It is, uh, when you think about it, we'll put this on the screen, the change in Paul's life is the most significant event in the history of the church. Because without the change in Paul's life, you don't have much of the New Testament, which was written by him. You don't have the, the broadness um, and the, um, uh, the immediacy, the uh, obligation uh, for the church to go out and share the message of Jesus with others. You don't have uh, a missionary movement taking place. Y you, you miss uh, the the brunt of the Christian message without this transformation in the life of this man, Paul. And even when he was persecuting the church, he was actually growing the church at the same time. You first meet him in Acts chapter 7, and we'll put the references on the screen. I, I won't read them unless you want to be on, on this broadcast for three hours, okay? Uh, but um, you can read this, and it almost reads like, um, like a, a, a narrative. It is a narrative, really easy to read. And in Acts chapter 7, you see a man by the name of Stephen, and Stephen is uh, uh, arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin. Uh, we talked a little bit about them last week. And he's essentially interrogated and put on trial for preaching the message of Jesus talking about his death, his resurrection, the need for people to repent and to follow him. And this is absolutely annoying, irritating, um, and more to this, this segment of Judaism at the time. The Sanhedrin was the same Sanhedrin that, Jewish, uh, that Jesus stood trial before. You've got uh, Sadducees on there. You've got Pharisees on there, probably mostly Sadducees. Sadducees controlled the temple. Um, they were the kind of Jewish aristocracy of the time, very wealthy. We talked about them a little bit last week and the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. And so you can review that on your own. But he is in, in a trial, basically, before them. And the more that he talks the more angry that they get because what he is talking about, and it's, he goes into a long address in Acts chapter 7, is how his people have been stubborn and resistant against what God wanted to do for generations and generations. And he ends his speech, uh, Stephen, saying, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. In other words, the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus. And uh, now you have betrayed and murdered him who you have uh, 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 you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, this would have irritated the Pharisees, uh, Sadducees so much because they didn't believe in angels, have not obeyed it. And so this is, this is telling uh, that group of people in the Sanhedrin, you're wrong. You're wrong. You've resisted God. It is very confrontational. It is very direct. But they're in charge. And they're saying this new community, this new thing of Jesus of Nazareth and his alleged resurrection, we will not have any of this. We will not have this taught. We will not have this preached. He is not the Messiah. He is an intruder. He is false. What he's teaching is against the temple. What he's teaching is against the law of Moses. What he's teaching is against uh, the, the, the teachings that we, that we tell you. 
And so there's a power struggle. This is a religious fight, and it is so strong, and they feel so passionately in their hatred of what Stephen says that they have him brutally executed. The Jews didn't have the right to do that legally, but they did it anyway. They were under Roman authority. They wanted to put a person to death publicly. They would get Rome involved like they did with Jesus. But they're going to execute this man nonetheless, and they drag him outside uh, 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 the city, and they're going to stone him to death. While they're stoning him, he says that he sees Jesus and has a vision of Jesus, and they that gets them even more angry. And the person who is overseeing his death, we're told for the first time, is a young man by the name of Saul or Paul, as we know him by his, his Roman name. And he is overseeing this. They would take their outer garments off when they would stone somebody, and they put him to death. And Saul was there with a big smile like a Cheshire cat uh, watching the execution of Stephen. And we're told in Acts chapter 8 that a very dark time ensued and a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and everyone was scattered except the apostles, the original 12, along with the replacement uh, of Judas, which we've already looked at. And so there's a scattering that takes place because Saul is a force to be reckoned with and a frightening one at that. And people are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And lo and behold, the gospel gets preached over there. So Philip goes into Samaria, preaches the gospel over there. Why? Because Paul is persecuting the church. So even when he's not a follower of Jesus, the gospel is still being spread regardless. And then you pick it up in Acts chapter 9, uh, which we read at the beginning. So there he's in pursuit, and we'll put this on the screen again so you keep tracking with me. He's in pursuit of these Christians in Damascus, and he is confronted directly by Jesus and called into service by Jesus. And then we see that verse in verse 11. He is praying. Wasn't he praying before? Um, you have to remember, Paul is an incredibly religious guy. Uh, he tells us this all over the New Testament. And we'll look at a couple of references of this, but he's a very religious guy. He uh, prays to God all the time. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the elite of religious law keeping. If you wanted to know what the Bible said in their day, the Pharisees would tell you. And they were like the holier than thou group. They were the elite echelon of Judaism. Again, they had fights with the Sadducees because the Sadducees rejected the, the angelic world. They rejected the immortality of the soul. Uh, they rejected um, uh, uh, supernatural things. Um, and so there was these conflicts between Pharisees and Sadducees. But Paul was like, he was a praying man. And he thought that killing off this whole Christianity thing was something that he would do in the name of God. But here... In Acts chapter 9, verse 11, he's praying, but I would suggest to you that there's a shift that's taken place in his prayers. There's a posture change in the life of this man. You see him talk about this experience. Those of you who have trouble with the supernatural, you read these miracles in the book of Acts, you say, oh, is this really hard like this? Saul on a horse, and, you know, maybe when you were growing up in church, you've seen these pictures of him on a blinding light, and he gets knocked off of his horse. You say, am I expected to believe in the transformation of this man, and that this actually took place? Well, it's interesting. Paul will recount this experience over and over and over again, even in front of a hostile audience. So Acts chapter 22 um, here, Paul has now been arrested after going into Jerusalem for what will probably be the last time in his life, and he has been arrested again for essentially preaching the gospel message, and uh, he's arrested there, and he has to give an account as he is uh, being interrogated 
uh, as to what went on and why he's been arrested. Here, uh, the the Gentiles, the Romans, are starting to get involved in this because this is a big deal that has happened if you read uh, Acts chapter 22. And you see him recount the story while being interrogated, basically, and he, he says it again, Acts chapter 22, as I came near Damascus, a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he recounts the story once again to the people, and it's a hostile environment. This isn't a bunch of people who want to believe it's true. My point is that Paul put his life on the line for this transformation that happened in his heart. It was so incredible to him. It, it was the foundation of what he wrote, of what he communicated, of what he preached, and what actually lives on today in the church in the 21st century. So he recounts it in Acts chapter 22. He recounts it again in Acts chapter 26. And this is before uh, Herod Agrippa. And uh, here he's in Caesarea. He's going to eventually end up in Rome where he will be imprisoned. Ultimately, Paul would die. He would lose his life, early tradition tells us, uh, because of his faith, persecuted because of his faith right to the point of losing his life. Here he's in Caesarea, and again he recounts this uh, before a totally Gentile audience, and he says, I heard a voice saying to me, and he details it in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A little bit more detail there. And he says, the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people. I will rescue you from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. Acts chapter 26. Note this one verse. It's a key for us when we talk about prayer and submission. So then, King Agrippa, he continues, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. When he was praying in Acts chapter 9, he's praying to the same God, essentially, that he knew all of his life. But there is a change that has happened in his life. He has now submitted to what he has previously persecuted. He has now submitted his life to Jesus where he was completely opposed to Jesus before. I was not disobedient. He could have chosen after he'd been blinded by that light, as it were. He could have chosen to say, I'm not following this. I'm going to continue to resist and to persecute the church. But he says here, I was not disobedient. There was a change in his heart, and a heart that was once proud is now a heart that is submissive to Jesus. And as he's praying there in Acts chapter 9 and verse 11, there must have been such a revolution taking place in this man, one that lives on today and continues to be influential in the lives of people. So I'm going to give you three lessons about prayer quickly here from the transformation of the life of Paul. Number one, when you pray, and I'm going to give you quotes from things that Paul wrote in the New Testament here. When you pray, remember, God doesn't owe you. Remember, God doesn't owe you when you pray. And here's what we sometimes do. We come to God and we say, well, look, God is real. I believe in God. I have faith. It's, yeah, you have no problem with that. Uh, but what you do is, and what, what I do is, we come to God, and it's almost like a transaction. And we say, well, God, I believe in you, I have faith in you, I worship you, and all of that. Uh, but I've been a good person. 
I've I've been a good guy. I've I've resisted temptation. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been watching the online services. I even clicked the give button and the share button. And you know, I'm a good Christian. I've got all this cred that I bring to you, God. And so with all of that, you owe me. So I've got this prayer request, see? And I've got all of this backing behind me, and you owe me. You've got to answer this prayer with a yes because I've been a good person. Be careful, folks. God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't. He this. He knows who's naughty and he knows who's nice. And you know, you might get a lump of coal from God if you don't have any cred. That's not the way that it works. Okay, God doesn't owe you. Romans chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. God doesn't owe you. He did all the work for you. He went to the cross for you. He justified you through the blood of Jesus so that you may approach him. He doesn't owe you anything. You can't impress him with all of your good stuff and sort of twist his arm behind his back and say, okay, now you've got to answer my prayer because I've got all of this cred behind me. Yes, those good works that you do are important. Yes, God sees them. Yes, they get God's attention. Yes, it's true. Uh, uh, husbands, for example, were told in, in one of Peter's letters, um, uh, don't, don't be harsh with your wives, lest your prayers be hindered. So for sure, there's an effect of your, be your behavior and your prayer life. I'm not denying this, but you don't go to God with this transactional mentality as if he owes you something. Something. And then we do something else, and we take certain scripture verses to God, and we say, well, God, you know, uh, not only do I have all this cred, but I even know some verses in the Bible. So let me just remind you of some of these verses in the Bible, and therefore, by these verses in the Bible, you've got to answer my prayers. Now, we talked about praying Scripture. It's good to pray Scripture, but what, what that does is that puts you into a posture of understanding the will of God. You don't pray Scripture as a technique to try to put God's arm behind his back and make him answer your prayers. I've mentioned this before, but I would uh, uh, encourage you to do a little search for the testimony of a man by the name of Dave Reaver, R-O-E-V-E-R, -E -E I think is how you, how you spell his last name. And Dave Reaver talks about, uh, after his experience of being horribly disfigured uh, by a, uh, uh, explosives, uh, I, I think it was in the Vietnam War and a, a tour of duty that he did there. He was horribly disfigured, and um, he wanted God to heal him. And he, he went into a church building, and, and you know, he claimed the whatever verse, by his stripes I am healed. And he said, God, you have to heal me of this disfigurement. And he, he was there for hours, and nothing happened. And to this day, nothing has happened, and he remains disfigured. He actually uses his disfigurement in his preaching to young people. But his words were something like this. He said, well, what was I going to do to force God to heal me? Was I going to kidnap his mother? <laughs> was I going to twist his hand behind his back and forth? God doesn't owe us anything. Be careful how you use his word. It's not meant to be used to pin him in a corner as if he owes us. People do this with verses like Isaiah 53 and verse 5, by his stripes you are healed. Um, and we say, well, you see, you know, I'm sick, and so by his stripes I'm healed, I'm healed, and I should be healed. Be very careful of the selective use of that passage of Scripture. Not one single time is that passage of Scripture used by anyone in the New Testament as a justification for God to immediately heal them of their illness. Not one time. It's used by Peter with reference to forgiveness of sin and healing of, the, of sin, but it is never used directly with reference to physical healing. It isn't. So it does, does the cross um, have an impact on physical healing? For sure, but not necessarily in the immediate. So don't try and pin God to the wall 
by using that passage of Scripture. Pandemic time, another passage that people use, uh, I'm going to flip there quickly, is Psalm 91. And um, this is a powerful psalm, uh, of, uh, and psalms are kind of cries of the heart, um, and like almost like songs. And um, this is a powerful psalm of protection. And people take some of these verses and they say, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. And they say, see, so if I claim that verse, I will not catch the, the, the virus. Folks, be very careful of the selective use of that passage uh, and the use of it in that way. Uh, you don't test God with these things and try and pin him to the wall. Uh, it's interesting that that passage is quoted one time in the New Testament by um, an individual who tries to pin God to the wall with it. It's actually quoted by Satan in the temptation story of Jesus. And uh, he takes the, the, the passage, uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully uh, so they will lift up their hands and you will not strike a stone. So he says, Jesus, jump from the temple. After all, Psalm 91 says he will catch you. This is a, this is a trick use of the scripture to try and get Jesus to end his life. And Jesus responds, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He does not owe you when you come to him. You come to him by grace, through faith, by what he did for you. And um, so be careful of that. When you submit to God, you're saying, God, you're the boss. I follow you. Your way is the right way. My way is secondary. It has to be adjusted to come under your way. That's what you do when you submit. Number two, when you pray, remember God's mercy. Remember his mercy. Mercy means, and I'll put it on the screen there, he doesn't give you what you deserve. When you think about it, when you survey the, the way Paul thought about it after the life that he lived, um, he was just quite happy and quite thrilled that God uh, took him and began to use him. You see this as he tells his story to young Pastor Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus um, in the first century, and he says to Timothy these words, uh, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, though he considered me faithful, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, I was once a persecutor, thinking of his past, I was once a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord, there's that word again, was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying, Timothy. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. Mercy means God doesn't give you what you deserve. What you and I deserve is to be separated from God for all eternity. That's what we deserve. On our own merit, on our own works, on our own performance, we miss the mark completely. So by God's mercy, we can come to him. He does not give us what we actually deserve. That's mercy. And when you pray, remember God's Grace. We've seen that word a few times. It's used by Paul um, uh, very uh, powerfully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. When you come to God in submission, you remember his grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. 
He lavishes his love upon you. He lavishes his gifts upon you because you don't deserve it. It is by faith that you have that relationship with God. It's not by anything that you do. It's by faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and that's it. You cannot work your way toward it at all. He gives it to you as a gift. You have to take it and believe it and receive it and begin to move on with your new life in God. He gives you what you don't deserve. So remember, when you come to God, come to God in submission. You're not, he's not your equal. He is God. You come to him and you say, God, I am so thankful that I can come to you, period. I am so thankful that this is not a transactional relationship. You don't owe me anything. I come to you because you are God and because I am in need and because I need you. I come to you and thank you for your mercy. The author of Hebrews says you can come boldly to obtain mercy in your time of need. I come to you because of your grace, God. You are a giver even though I don't deserve it. You start praying that way, and you're likely going to see a few more yeses and answers to your prayers, as we sometimes put it, because your posture, your heart is submitted to God, just as Paul's was 2,000 years ago uh, after his Damascus Road experience. So I'd invite the band, if they would come and uh, just play in the background, you're going to hear them um, uh, as they do that. And I want to pray for you and then just give a couple of, uh, of announcements before we close uh, today. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you today. Lord, I pray that you would teach us. Uh, we are so busy and life moves so fast, even, even though many of us are spending so much more time at home and things have slowed down, still they seem to move very fast. And God, sometimes when we call out to you, it can just be like, uh, like pressing buttons on our devices. It can be, our expectation can be that you are some sort of piece of electronics that's going to uh, move if we push the right buttons. And, and God, I pray you would help us to go deeper than that. I pray you would help us, Lord, to enjoy a relationship with you where we call out to you as our Father, where we submit our hearts to you, where we praise you for your grace and for your mercy, where we realize, oh God, that it's so good just to be called your child, so good just to be part of the community of faith around the world, so good to have turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So, Lord, help us to build on that priority. I pray for those who are just so frustrated and they call out to you and, and continue to call out to you and they see no breakthrough, they see no answer. Lord, I pray people will get to new places in their walk with you. I pray for those who are brand new to Christianity and this whole thing about Jesus, Lord, that they would just start to call out to you as their father and as their friend and begin to grow, God. Oh, we worship you and we praise you and we thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would remind you again tomorrow night, we're going to do more of your questions um, at 7 p.m. to tune in with us. And again, share this broadcast with your friends. Uh, that would be so, so good to uh, encourage people. There's a lot of stuff on the Internet, okay? And uh, this is good stuff, so I encourage you to share. We're just going to finish up uh, with the band, and uh, then we'll let you go. And we'll see you again this coming week and then Sunday. God bless you.
your promise still stands great is your faithfulness your faithfulness i'm still in your hands this is my confidence you'll never fail me your promise still stands great is your faithfulness your faithfulness i'm still in your hands this is my confidence you've never failed me I give you glory for 
folks I'm moving forward to follow after you and now I'm ready for whatever you want to do your presence is an open door we want you Lord like never He's an open door, so come now, Lord, like never before. In every season, your grace has been enough, and I'm believing the best is yet to come. The cross before me, my hope on things above. And in you, Jesus, the best is yet to come. Your presence is an open door. We want you, Lord, like Your presence is an open door, so come now, Lord, like never before. God bless you, everyone. Have a great Sunday.